I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. Oh. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 58 for November. I'm Duncan, and we're recording this the day after the 2016 US presidential election. And in this week of strange and crazy news, there is a little bit of happiness in that Joe Dante is making a movie starring Bill Hader in the biopic of the gentleman renegade filmmaker Roger Corman. Awesome. And uh, for some reason, that really warmed my heart. Yeah. I think because I saw that documentary, uh, and I talked about it in the podcast a couple of months ago, about him, and he seemed like such a nice guy, you know? And uh, I re- Corman? Corman, yeah. yeah. And that just seems so unusual. You know, you have all these really over-the-top characters, usually yeah. the subject of documentaries. You know, it's kind of Joel Silvers or the Canon yeah, films sure, or whatever. Sure. And he was this guy who was just like, oh, yeah, I'll give you a start, you know? And it's all these wonderful people he gave us yeah. a start to. So I'm expecting might quite not a... pay you. Yeah, might not pay you, yeah. but um, we'll, we'll just kind of make this for, you know, $50,000. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, Scorsese and Jack Nicholson and everyone else. So uh, I really like that idea. I think that'll be interesting. And yeah. uh, Hayter's a good one to choose. And just Dante as well. I just think, man, I, hear, I don't know what he's done recently, but no, it's a not, good choice. No, nothing for a while, eh? Mm. Yeah. Look, uh, and I'm Simon, and uh, in honour of the Trump presidency, I'm drinking a thirst-quenching Brondo. <laughs> it's got electrolytes, you know? So, Simon, what have you been watching? All right. Uh, long-time listeners may be aware of a term I created called geeling. Uh, named after the unwatchable abomination that is the 2003 film Geely, starring Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. To Geely, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, to Geely a film is to quit it. To know that kissing the 45 minutes or half hour, or in the case of Geely itself, a mere 17 minutes you've invested already goodbye, is better than proceeding to watch the rest of the film. Uh, well, folks, I geely a film this month, and that film was 2015's Landmine Goes Click. Right. Yeah. An attention-grabbing title, uh, a good setup. Three friends hiking in Georgia, one of whom steps on an unexploded landmine, and a positive review got me interested. Uh, but the dawdling play pace, amateur actors clearly ad-libbing, and most alarmingly, the sense that a new character, this kind of creepy local, who's well played by the way by a, a veteran Georgian actor, is introduced so the script can slowly, inch by inch, move him towards raping a pretty, uh, a pretty hiker. It's, it's, it's like it's 100 minutes long as well, when I'm certain 80 minutes would have sufficed. Um, and I'm pretty certain, actually, it probably would have worked best as a short yeah, and, and not a film at all. Either way, I was out at about 45 minutes, which is kind of surprising I lasted that long. <laughs> well, yeah. like I say, this Georgian actor who shows up is really pretty good, but there's this kind of awkward ad-libbing going on, and the, the rest of the cast aren't up to it. Yeah, And I thought, oh, and then I started to get that queasy feeling that it was getting nasty. Yeah, and so of course I bailed, checked it out on IMDb, found out yes it did in fact go the way I thought it would be. Right. Yeah, and so I've got no regrets. Yeah, happily out. My second film coming between the breakout hit of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and a follow-up film with director Robert Aldrich, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, uh, Betty Davis starred in another murderous exploitation film, 1964's Dead Ringer, uh, playing twin sisters, one rich and awful, one poor and only slightly awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davis injects life into an overlong but undeniably fun drama. Real-life playboy Peter Lawford plays a sleazy playboy with designs on one of the twins, while Carl Malden is a cop in love with the other. <laughs> uh, but Davis is a star, as she always is, elevating Dead Ringer from what could have been a mediocre pop boiler 
to a pretty enjoyable forgotten thriller. And the poster's to die for if you get a chance. It's right. kind of got her face and then a, another version of her face sort of on the other side, but it's a skull and it's kind of just oh. superimposed over top. Yep. You know, in the 60s, there were a lot of really radical kind of crazy, you know, things going on with movie posters. Yeah. Yeah, really nice poster. Uh, I saw the third and for me most purely enjoyable of the Trek films, Star Trek Beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the need to set up a new franchise or the urge to stretch for something needlessly important in terms of the series' long history, Beyond simply has a bit of fun, really. Stranding the crew after a brutal battle goes against them and splitting them into kind of awkward partnerships, you know, Bones with Spock, Kirk with Chekhov, and Scotty with a warlike alien makes for some fun interactions. Uh, and, you know, sure, there's like hand-waving science explanations all over the place uh, that make no sense, and inevitably it all ends with another fist fight. But there's a great deal of joy to be had getting there, I thought. And the Beastie Boys have a prominent and important role as well. <laughs> as it turns out, it's not just the trailer. Um, but it's got a villain problem, um, right. like a lot of these films, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Justin Lin directed that. Yeah, it? yeah. And I think curious. He, yeah, totally. And I think he handles it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, the creepy low-budget art house horror, which is a growing subgenre at the moment, a trend, of course, that I'm loving. Uh, the French film Evolution, set in, set in an isolated coastal town, made up only of prepubescent boys and their icy mothers. Evolution is a stark, lovely-looking, Lovecraftian flick. The clock's in at a per- perfectly paced 80 minutes and delivers goopy, strange imagery aplenty. <laughs> so, you know, I loved it. Cool. Yeah. So, how about yourself? What have you been watching? Uh, I watched Cat's Eye, Stephen King's mid-80s anthology of spooky stories connected by an adventurous stray cat, kind of like the feline equivalent of The Littlest Hobo, Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I've seen this. <laughs> yeah, well, as you'd know them probably, it is uh, more Twilight Zone than, say, The Shining. A little bit watered-down horror that doesn't have many scares, but it does have James Woods enjoying himself as a man forced to quit smoking through mafia terror tactics. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite story in there. Uh, and it contains the questionable acting decision of a child Drew Barrymore portraying an intellectually ha- handicapped girl. Oh, no. Yeah, that was like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're really entering some interesting... Territory here. Uh, I saw The Girl. In an earlier podcast, I professed that this is the story I thought would make a better film than the recent Hitchcock, starring Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren. In this, Sienna Miller plays the girl of the title, Tippi Hedren, as her working relationship with director Alfred Hitchcock blossoms and then deteriorates. As the movie progresses, Toby Jones plays Hitch as a self-pitying bully, and the psychological and physical torment means that the film begins to feel like a woman being chased by a monster. Um, both these Hitchcock bios look to kind of demystify the man, and this is definitely an uncomfortable watch, as both lead characters end up kind of hollowed out by the experience at the end of it. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it is It it is good. It's a very interesting story, um, yep. but because of the running time, Hitch just turns into the, you know what I mean? Like it becomes a bit relentless, and I'm sure How it was. How long is it? Is it? Uh, it's about, I guess it's 90 minutes. Right, film, but right. because of the story, it's it's crossing over these years, yes. like uh, you know, a couple of years, and it so it condenses all these moments into it, and it just feels like you know someone getting psychologically right. tortured every single day. And I'm sure it wasn't quite like that. I'm sure yeah. it's subtler as well. Um, and speaking of Hitchcock, I'm filling out those small number of his films I haven't seen, and Stage Fright is an over, often overlooked one with a notorious audience dividing twist. And great work from Marlene Dietrich as a stage legend who may have killed her husband and framed her lover. Jane, Wy- Jane Wyman, Ronald Reagan's first wife, 
as charming as the self-appointed detective investigating with her father, played by the always funny Alistair Sims. And after 1940, this is one of only three films Hitchcock would return to England to make. And the casting is a big part of the enjoyment to be gained from this. Um, yep. Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD comics. Yes, I saw this a couple of months back. Oh, yeah. Responsible for Judge Dredd bursting through the book stands in the 70s and 80s. While the documentary is little more than talking heads, what talking they do. Uh, articulate acerbic writers and artists speaking passionately about their work, the society it was a reaction to, the industry it was fighting against, and the internal conflicts it often exploded into. Uh, I really enjoyed, like, as far as a documentary goes, uh, you know, adequately made, I guess, you know. But the, the people they got were like, wow, I could watch those guys talk all day, you know. Um, yeah, people like yeah. Grant Morrison, and I'm not sure who the head of um, – 2000 AD was, but he was he was great. He yep. was just like just no one was safe from his vitriol. Oh, that's what I loved about. And the um, was it the late eighties or maybe it's nineties when they got into this incredibly sexist marketing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's it's worth watching. I mean, I I had never really read 2000 AD. I had friends who were into it a lot, yep. so I remember seeing it lying around in my mate's you know bedroom floor. But I never really read it that much. But sure. um. But you didn't have to. Just that documentary, if you get a chance to watch it, is worth watching because I found it quite gripping, actually. Yeah, agreed. It was a magazine I touched on a bit in my youth, mm. but never a huge fan and never really a big Judge Shred fan. I like some of the other characters a bit more. Right, yeah. But like you say, you don't need to. It's, it's no. just kind of a riveting, yeah,ly uh, told story, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Inferno, which is more of the same European globetrotting, but with a doomsday countdown clock attached to it. Um, for me, this was the most successful of the films based on Dan Brown's co-chasing hero, mainly because rather than taking an hour to get up steam, Inferno starts with a series of bangs and then settles into its stride. Felicity Jones makes for a more rounded sidekick to Tom Hanks's uh, slightly bland hero. Uh, and the film was more visually compelling and ambitious than the other previous two films combined. I also get the feeling that author Dan Brown has learned how to make the opening more compelling because of the struggles of his other books adaptations. Right. I don't know which, whether it was where it was done, but it just reeks of someone going, Hmm, my films kind of take a while to get going when they get adapted. How about this? Yeah. And, uh, I'm not sure, but I get a sense that that's, that's what happened. Um, I also saw the Ghostbusters remake and I actually really enjoyed it. The film takes nice sly pot shots at internet haters as well as delivering the Ghostbusters to a new generation. Uh, the dialogue's consistently amusing. Chris Hemsworth, the benefactor of portraying the stupidest character imaginable. Uh, while it lacks the devastating edge of like Bill Murray off the leash in the original, the four leads all gel together and really deliver, especially Melissa McCarthy and Kate McKinnon. Uh, it's only the actual ghost hunting that doesn't have that kind of dangerous, inventive edge that the original had. Mm. Um, but I thought this was almost as good a remake as you could hope for. And finally... The Sheriff and the Satellite Kid. <laughs> Three years before E.T., Sheriff Bud Spencer looks after an alien child on the run from the feds. It is, typi- it is typical Bud Spencer repetition, just punching hundreds of people. And one standout, scene, one standout scene is hilarious because the kid, who's an alien kid, has a machine that can control people. So he uses it on like this army to jostle them forward and back like he's using a VCR. Um, but during the action, the camera zooms in on a couple of shots, so it zooms back as it's reversed. So you're watching reversed footage rather than people moving back and forth. Right. You know, but you can clearly see, like, I can't do it justice, but this scene is hilarious, 70s cheesiness. 
And it also has the most incessant song called The Sheriff that plays every two minutes in this film. I'm, I swear it's played on screen for about 40 of the 90 minutes in the film. I'd say a solid 40 minutes solid of it 40. is this song. And the song has been stuck in a loop in my head every morning for a week. It's just wow. maddening. I know I've put you through some hard times. Look at you now. Point being, my dear, there's only so much I can teach you through kindness. Is this an apology? For doing whatever it took to turn you into a movie star. So, Duncan, what's the news? Well, Brett Easton Ellis had a friendly dinner with movie executives, no doubt all of them with slick back hair, dressed in Armani suits, in between slipping off to the toilets to sniff cocaine and discussing stock prices. They swapped business cards, obviously textured bone coloured with subtle watermarks. But also the executives thought they were amongst friends and they let slip that no one at Warner Brothers cares about making good superhero films. Really? Yep. Because they know they have a captive audience who will eat it up. Uh, Easton Ellis isn't exactly a newbie at this kind of thing, so for him to cough that up in an interview betrays an astounding lapse in judgment. Just like Patrick Bateman, you wouldn't want to be Easton Ellis's secretary as they fielded calls about that after that story broke. Um, so he's had to kind of row back harder and quicker than an Olympic canoeist in highlighting the fact that he initially said it was a second-hand conversation. So he was talking to executives, and they were talking about other executives who had spoken to them. Right. Um, but then again, maybe the executives got confused and they thought they were dining with Marcus Halberstrom rather than Easton Ellis, but he won't be getting a reservation at Dorsia anytime soon. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I think I could have probably guessed this by watching Warner Brothers <laughs> superhero movies. Yeah, you know? yeah it's, it, oh, it just cracked me up. It is like, pretty funny. That's great. Look, in, in news that almost made the tree away for me this month, uh, if I wasn't actually so late on it. Uh, the Death Wish remake finished filming, and I have... Low hopes for it. Uh, <laughs> sure, you could argue we probably didn't need a remake of the reactionary vigilante film in the first place, but I always felt there were elements of Death Wish that worked really well and could stand another look. After all, if Jodie Foster can, can get you know a revenge killy in the Brave One and get good reviews for it, uh, then why can't a remake of Death Wish be worth a look? When I heard Joe Carnahan was chasing Liam Neeson for the role, my interest was piqued. The two who gave us the awesome The Grey reuniting, how good could that be? Uh, sadly, the studio was more interested in Bruce Willis, Ooh. which led to Joe Carnahan dropping out and eventually Eli Roth stepping Ooh. up to the plate. Now, that's not a combination that fills me with confidence. <laughs> no. You know, Roth is an interesting choice, I guess, and could work. But Willis? The man Sylvester Stallone considers lazy and greedy. <laughs> you know? The man who seems to have virtually retired. Uh, the man who hasn't delivered a performance that looked like he gave a damn in years. Suffice it to say, the level of caution and my cautious optimism for this one is pretty high, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know he's just going to walk around smugly scowling, sort yeah. of, and killing people. There's not going to be a lot of introspection, I, I suspect. No. And, yeah. And, I mean, you're right. Actually, Willis, of all the people who have checked out, he has checked out the most aggressively. I mean, Only. You know. Um, and Eli Roth's interesting just because his background has purely been in horror. Mm. Um, and, and he could be a really interesting choice, but I also imagine he will not be the man who can summon anything special out of Willis. No. Willis will steamroll him yeah, and just right. do whatever he wants to do, Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, well, if anything, you know, Kevin Smith's yeah. <laughs> to go well, by. Yeah, exactly. That's the example I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He does really need a um, uh, 
strong hand, I think. Yeah. I think he's actually really got to respect the director and I think, or the project, you know? Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people were saying, I remember that whole thing about Kevin Smith coming out about Cop Out, and, the, and he wasn't the only one. There was other people going, yeah, obviously. But he did a looper around that time and he seemed engaged in that, you know? Yes. And you've got to be, if you're a director like Kevin Smith or Eli Roth and you're sitting there going, I want that. I want someone who obviously understands what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy who directed Looper was like, yeah, no, he was great to work with. Yeah. In movie news, I try to find one of two things, either a funny, weird story or one that excites. And I got to say that the news of the man who brought us the Raid films teaming up with the star of a recent cult film, The Guest, uh, in a revenge flick is my idea of both exciting and a bit funny and weird. Yeah. Um, having watched the first season of Downton Abbey, I never thought I'd think of Dan Stevens as exciting, but so convincing and bonkers was his turn in that wacky little movie that Simon recommended to me many episodes ago that I was even considering him a viable option as like a future James Bond. Yeah. Um, so he will appear in The Apostle, uh, which has him trying to recover his sister from a cult. It's also a period piece and set on an island. So I'm really hoping for like the Wicker Man with lots of inventively captured lightning quick kung fu stabbage. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that sounds so fantastic. Um, <laughs> even just the Wicker Man, actually. Yeah. Even if it was just like a Wicker Man with him in the lead, um, I'd be down with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it almost sounds like a um, Ben Wheatley kind of story, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, when you put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. And in international box office weirdness news, Jack Reacher, Never Say Never Again, is it, that's what they call him, <laughs> is it? Um, came out to weak reviews and soft box office. No great shocks, I guess. But it's interesting to look at the films that bested it. In the US, the film starring the imposing six-foot-plus Tom Cruise, I guess he is, isn't he? <laughs> couldn't beat Tyler Perry in a dress as Boo a Medea Halloween. It's curious because outside of the States, the Tyler Perry phenomenon means nothing. Mm. Uh, but in the US, Perry and his drag comedies and moralistic dramas speak to a largely African-American audience who don't care that the critics hate his films. Mm. Meanwhile, in that other hugely important market for American films, China, Jack Reacher, The Never-Ending Story, also <laughs> couldn't win its opening. Wow. Soundly kicked in the face by Jason Statham's Mechanic Resurrection, <laughs> the sequel to his 2011 film, The Mechanic, because apparently China loved themselves a bit of Expendables. Uh, Transporter, and of course, Fast and the Furious, which mm. stayed them in. Uh, so they happily handed over their hard-earned Ren Minbai, I had to look that up, by the way, to watch what would have been called, back in the day, a straight-to-video sequel to a straight-to-video movie. Uh, you know, what a world we live in. That's amazing. I had no idea that Mechanic Resurrection was even a thing. Oh, yeah, I was. I saw the trailer, and it looked right. fine, but it struck me as something that I was... Probably not likely to see. Yeah, I didn't watch the first one. I had no desire to. So. Sure, I have seen the first one. <laughs> of and I've even know. seen the um, Charles Bronson film. It's a remake of. Yeah, right, yeah. Which is infinitely better, obviously. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the fact that the sequel was number one in the box office in China. In mm. fact, there was uh, um, Jack Reacher was third because it was uh, obviously a, a, a local Chinese film that was second. Right. But, yeah, they do love themselves some Statham. Wow. Yeah. New ambassador for China, I think. Yeah. In patron saint of spoiler alert news, Lars von Trier has cast Matt Dillon as a serial killer in his latest film, The House That Jack Built, along with everyone's favourite viral video Hitler with interchangeable dialogue, Bruno Garns. It's set in the 70s and 80s and promises to leap around the timeline with nymphomaniac-like liberalism. 
And it's also noteworthy that Von Trier finally embracing the absolute darkest element of humanity in its most obvious form. Rather than dancing around things like sexuality, grief, and guilt, he's going headlong into evil. Uh, so buckle in, listeners. I can hear the booze from Carnes already. Uh, they're also filming in a place in Sweden called Trollhattan, which sounds like both a glorious cheap knockoff 80s horror film and a trending hashtag go, go to New Yorkers. <laughs> I would have loved to have rented, rented Trollhattan back in 84. <laughs> yeah, Trollhattan. Oh, Trollhattan Resurrection. I didn't see the first Trollhattan. Oh, the, the whole Trollhattan series. Eh? <laughs> yeah. When did Trollhattan jump the shark? Well, uh, ep- number four, I think. Yeah. And in kind of follow-up from last month's Hitchcock special news, Catherine Adams, who appeared in Hitch's Saboteur, has passed away at the age of 96. Ooh. Now, I do love me some old-timey movies, so I like to remember people like Catherine Adams when they pass, even if it's just to pause and wonder at the amount of cinema that they've lived through. Adams made her screen debut in 1939, uh, opposite Charles Lawton in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. small part, but and she had a career that lasted a mere seven years and 26 credits. But in that seven years, she worked with Lawton and Hitchcock, Ginger Rogers, and a dude named Fuzzy Knight. Oh, How good awesome. is that? Uh, on more than one occasion as well, by the way. She appeared in films with awesome titles like Hell's a Poppin' and Love, Honor, and Oh Baby. <laughs> oh. And she apparently had one of those careers short on highlights and long on uncredited roles in girlfriend parts and B-Westerns, B-Gangster films, and B-War movies. Right. Basically anything with a B in front of it. Right. Saboteur was one of her final films before she gave it all away for love. So who really knows the sort of career she could have had? Uh, either way, she was there for a fascinating, really exciting uh, period of film history. You have to evacuate the city. Never say that word. You've just shut down the power to the whole city. Don't you understand? He's using the power. Please, Mayor Bradley, you have to believe me. You're the only one that can do something. Don't, please don't be like the mayor in Jaws. <laughs> and never compare me to the Jaws mayor. Never! And now we're on to No Comps, where we go out and see a latest release. And this one is Doctor Strange, directed by Scott Derrickson, starring Benedict Cumberpatch, Tilda Swinton, Chirazel Ejiofor, Rachel McAdams, and Mads Mikkelsen. Doctor Stephen Strange is an arrogant genius, like a Tony Stark, if Stark was a brilliant surgeon, whose hands are hideously injured in a car accident. He seeks to recover use of his broken hands through training at a mystical Tibetan monastery overrun by the Ancient One. Here he is trained in the magic arts, taught combat skills, and the ability to move through portals and control time with a strange magical artifact. All of which comes in handy when he crosses paths with Cassilius, a renegade monk, I think they call him, uh, who wants to destroy the world by opening a portal in the sky for a cloud monster to come through. Mm. So look, if you can't tell, uh, I did not like this film a great deal. In fact, I wrote most of this in a pretty tight couple of hours of harnessed laser-like anger after watching it. Then I waited a while to see the other reviews come out, which took a while because Strange was released in New Zealand before the US, right? Uh, and see them climb into it as well. And it didn't happen. Mm. Uh, the reviews have been really glowing. Mm. Uh, the box office, when it came, has been bountiful. The world loves this film. I'm pleased to say friend of the show, Darren Bevan, shares my general kind of umbrage. His review on Darren's World of Entertainment site is, I think, on point on this. But I do otherwise feel strangely alone on Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Look, being a diehard Pink Floyd fan, it was good to hear the opening strains of their classic psychedelic tune, Interstellar Overdrive, kick in early as the Doctor gets ready for another gala event. And the song title gives you some idea as to where this film is headed with its visuals. Uh, I'd just like to say it's important to note that I saw this in 2D. I did not see it in 3D. Um, 
I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. I was just like, oh, I'll go see it because it's down local. And then sure. I was halfway through the film going, hmm, maybe I should have seen this in 3D. Yeah, right. Because these visual effects make Inception look like my dinner with Andre. Um, the visuals were impressive, with, but they were a little bit repetitive. Uh, particularly during the chase when Doctor Strange and Baron Mordo are fleeing from the villains. It's not clear both literally and narratively where our heroes are running toward. Yeah. I was just like, well, where are you going? Yeah, look, the effects for me, the quality them very wildly. I, I really dug a trippy scene where the stranger's showing the alternate dimensions around him for the first time. Um, my body horror love was tickled by the sight of fingers that grew hands, with more fingers growing hands ad nauseum until it all ended with Strange tumbling into his own eyeball. Mm. Uh, and likewise, the sight of the world turning in on itself, Inception styles, with cars driving over walls and upside down, like the, la- like the largest Hot Wheels track Escher ever owned. Um, while buildings twisted and came apart, it was, it was pretty dazzling. But there's the rub. I just mentioned Inception uh, like like you did, mm. and like I think every reviewer ever did. Yeah. Um, and it, and that kind of makes, I don't know, does that make us unoriginal as reviewers, or is it not our fault because it's a film stealing its central stylistic motif from another massive blockbuster we all yeah. remember? Um, and it's kind of impossible to ignore that, that, yeah. that, that sense of familiarity. And there are a couple of wonky-looking fight scenes for me. So most of the fight scenes are of the muddy, messy, impossible-to-follow variety. You know, I don't know if yeah. anyone's fighting well or not. Uh, and early on, Tilda Swinton, or a stunt double, or a CG version of Tilda, or a CGI version of her stunt double, I, um, lands, and you can actually visibly see the click as she turns from a real person to a... Right. Do you know? Yep. Um, and I think that also happens uh, at one point when Mordo, the character played by Chuatol, leaps over Benedict in a training scene, morphing from pixel to person, kind of seemfully. And it all makes me long for that elegant wire work of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Like, we yeah. seem to have forgotten that now. Yeah. So ready to turn people into CGI versions, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, at one point, I and I talk about this guy all the time, but Scott Atkins, the B-movie martial arts star, is in this. And I don't know if he's doing good work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's really hard to tell. And I kind of kind of miss that, that, yep. that sort of the fact that that action doesn't exist in these films so much. Yeah, I think there's a visceral element that you lose when you're watching something like this. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I admit I didn't see those, you know, um, changes between... Well, I saw it in 3D, so maybe that made it more obvious. Maybe, yeah. It was at the IMAX screen as well, so it's a mm. big screen. and Maybe that... Maybe, yeah. yeah. I thought the film made um, good use of different temporal states, like Stranger's out-of-body fight while his actual body is being resuscitated. I really liked that. But also, all this means that as the rules of the universe kind of go out the window, so do the stakes, and even yeah. allows the unwelcome return of undeath, admittedly this time, mainly of civilians, but also of at least one major character. And not that it's the film's intention, but I don't think, but the smoke and mirrors don't hide that it is yet another origin story. Cumberpatch's journey is from arrogant medical doctor to arrogant defender of the universe, <laughs> the idea to take ego out of the equation from the most ego-driven man this side of Tony Stark is a theme. But other than embracing the concept of self-sacrifice, which isn't actually a real thing uh, because of undeath, it never quite delivers the message in any tangible form. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting that they were like, you need to take the ego out, you're too arrogant. But really, at the end, he's basically the same guy. Yeah, yeah, look, the, yeah, totally. And I think worryingly for me, the film that Doctor Strange most reminds me of um, the superhero origin story it resembles the most is the Green Lantern. Right. You know, so it's it's better than the Green Lantern, you know, in the same way that the Katy Perry song with Rebecca Black in it is actually better than the Rebecca Black song <laughs> it's similar to. Uh, but neither of those are great. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and, and neither of the, 
either of these two films, I think. And I'm going to go a bit deep here, but it, it, both films actually are the same kind of, or the same breed of superhero origin story. They're kind of unwieldy hybrids as well. One's asking us to tag along on kickboxerish fight training montages and delivering a really overwhelming amount of world building. Mm. You know, if you look at Iron Man, we, we're not really establishing a world because it's our world and we understand that. But in this, we're introduced to this world of magic and all of this and developing these complex villains. And I remember watching Green Lantern. It all proved a bit much for that. And I think it proves a bit much for this too, you know? Mm. And it really is similar. I mean, they're both having characters who summon weapons out of magical energy. Both films have characters whose weaknesses are their arrogance and all-around awesomeness as well, mm. strangely enough. Both films have massive cloud-like supervillains descending from the sky and both films have villainous turns teased at the end of the film. In both cases, by characters who play the same roles in both films. Right. You know? So yeah. it's like remarkably how similar those two films are. Mm. And Green Lantern was just derided, mm. and yet this is beloved. Yeah. And, and it's a better film. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's interesting because if you go on to uh, IMDb boards, I, I never comment, but I do like enjoy reading Never them. comment. Never that's, comment. That's a rule there. That's the rule. That's the rule. Never comment, but I do read occasionally. Uh, the Marvel DC ones always like Suicide Squad. I never saw the film, but I was like, "This is getting roasted." I've got to check out the IMDb IMDb board, and of course, you know, it's updating every four seconds. So yeah, people are like, sure. ah. And one of their big complaints was something like even Suicide Squad or whatever being accused of being a bit crap. But the problem is that Marvel pump out the same thing, and it gets loved. And I always thought, well, that's a bit of a sore loser kind of thing to say, but I kind of get their point with this. Like this has got like ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something. And I'm just like, whoa! Like, how has Doctor Strange got that? Yeah, that's that's that, kind of crazy. That to me is remarkable. Yeah, that this this film is solidly average. You know what I yeah. mean? And I and I, I kind of yeah, I didn't. I'm not saying that the other things need to get bumped up, but they do need to. I just I kind of found the same thing with this, where I'm like, yeah, this is fine, but this is not 90 yeah. percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And look, you talked about it before, but the problem with magic as a superhero, uh, as a superpower, is that I have no idea what the limits of those powers are. Mm. You know, when Strange is warping time, why can his friends avoid the effects? Yeah. You know, why can't his enemies? And then why can they when they can? Mm. You know, there's a scene where they are getting affected by his time warping, and then they're not. Uh, and it makes for cool effects as bad guys are trapped in falling walls that reform around them as time rolls backwards. But I have no idea what the rules of the world are at that moment. Yeah. And why can Strange and his sorcerer's friends summon magical energy out of nothingness to create swords, whips, and shields, but need miniature brass knuckle dusters every time they try to travel anywhere? Mm. You know? Unless, of course, the answer is narrative convenience, which I suspect it is. Yeah. And more worryingly, what were the villains trying to achieve? Yeah. Like, I I mean, do you clearly understand what they're up to? Because I I don't entirely. And, And if you understood what they were up to, do you have a decent grasp on why they were doing it? Yeah. You know, I don't know what... Mads Mikkelsen's character really wanted. He wanted some kind of immortality, right? And he thought that this um, cloud monster could, would ingest all of Earth and then everyone would be immortal forever. But that seems madness. It is madness. And, and I think that's one of my problems with superhero... Uh, well, no, not superhero films, because I had a similar problem with Star Trek that, Beyond, is that the villains aren't particular, particularly strong. No. And I think part of the problem is... In an effort to raise the stakes, and we always we've talked about this before, the fact that all these movies have to be about the end of the world. Mm. Who who wants the end of the world? Yeah. And ultimately, the only people who want the end of the world are madmen. Yeah. You've got to be mad to want the apocalypse. Uh, so where are the cunning geniuses, the criminal masterminds? You know, the bad guys with fiendish plots to further their own ends. Mm. 
Uh, why is Lex Luthor just a bonkers, barking madman in the last um, Superman film, you know? And why should we be so confused by an antagonist's needs? Mm. You know, it seems to me if they made their goals smaller and things that people do want, yeah, understandable goals, that would be better than, I want to destroy the world. Yeah. Which is mostly a senseless goal. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, it's, it's not, a lot of it, it's not even greed. You know, no, it's just greed I would get. It's just embracing nihilism. You know, I think this would be a better film if that character wanted to collect artifacts because yeah. he wanted the power they gave him. Yeah. And that would still be a threat, and it would still make him dangerous, and it would still make him worth a bit defeating. But it would also make him understandable because artifacts are cool. Yeah. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant. Totally. Um, what well, perfect example, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I actually quite liked Cumberbatch in this film. I, I think that he he's a likable screen presence. I think they cast well, and he's you know, oozing arrogance and intelligence with always a little bit of a hint of vulnerability. That's just him as, a, as an actor. Um, and I thought the casting actually did a lot of heavy lifting in this film. Uh, for instance, the talk of Joaquin Phoenix in this role seems like it wouldn't have had anywhere near the right look or feel. Man, I forgot about that talk. Yeah, do you remember? Yeah, I do now. Considering that both of them have appeared in two of the last three Best Picture Oscar winners, McAdams and Ejiofor both seem to be a little too good for these roles. Um, oh, I mean, McAdams in particular doesn't seem like there's much to build on, cursed with a case of the Portmans from Thor, but even less reason to impact on future narratives. Like, I was just like, why are you doing this? Like, you, you're you a quality actress, and you you can, I imagine, have pick of whatever you want to. Are you really getting paid that well to do this? Uh, yeah. Look, you know? what you're saying is, is one of the worst features of this film. Poor Rachel McAdams. She's the most poorly utilized love interest character, I think, in this entire Marvel Universe, you know, she makes Natalie Portman's role in Thor look like pivotal world building turns in comparison. You know, she actually had a reason for existing in the first yeah. Thor film. Um, Rachel McAdams, I don't know, she's dealt placeholder dialogue. It felt like, and serves only as the character who recognizes the inherent goodness in another character who acts like a jerk. Yeah, which is a trope, and and she could and probably should have been written out of the script as easily as her character fails every part of the Bechdel test. Yeah. It was, it was it was terrible. I yeah. felt I felt like you do. I guess for her as an actress, that, mm. um, she could be this character who just drops in and out of the screenplay every now and again. Yeah, I was just like that's just unnecessary. It's just a slap in the face. And I can understand if you were maybe a, a up and coming actress or maybe someone who doesn't get those kind of big parts. But you know, I mean, she was in Spotlight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she was. She, she's been in a lot of films. I imagine she can pre- almost pick yeah. and choose what she wants. And I agree with you on Benedict. And I think one of the strengths of these films is they're able to get actors they shouldn't be able to get. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the X-Men films, the last X-Men, not Apocalypse, because um, I haven't seen that one, but uh, the one before it, mm. how it had a ridiculous level of talent. Yeah. Insane. We, sh- we shouldn't see those that caliber of actor yeah. in a film like that. That's right. Yeah. But, I mean, at least in that, you've got, like... Actors who are like, hey, you're going to be um, super strong or you're going to be, you're going to look cool, yeah. you know? But this is like, okay, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be in OR Scrubs. <laughs> or are they? Oh, are they? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, that's that's going to be you and you're just going to be. You're, you're going to believe in Doctor Strange. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's it. That's your yeah. thing. And Four plays like a straight-laced, rule-abiding defender. He's like shorn of much humor. Uh, and while he and Cumberbatch do well in the dramatic scenes, especially taking into account the ludicrous nature of the words they're actually saying, if you actually stop there and listen to what these two super talented actors are saying, you're like, this is ridiculous and you're somehow selling it. So I've got to give you some credit. 
but their comedic byplay seems almost one way. Like it seems just like Cumberbatch and mm. Edge Falls almost slightly yeah. approaching the whole film slightly differently, like quite seriously. In fact, it is another English actor, Benedict Wong, who has the best exchanges, both dramatic and comedic, with Cumberbatch. Although, let's face it, the breakout star of this film is the Cape of Levitation, I believe yeah. it's called. A character unto itself, cheeky, stubborn and smart and also quite violent. Um, but that just comes out of nowhere. And again, it's another one of those things of like, it'll behave and then it will just switch off yeah. when it's convenient. And then it will come back on and then, yeah. Yeah, it did provide some of the better um, humorous moments. I'll give yeah. you that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This goes to your point. The nature of these films is that the periphery characters represent a quality the protagonist lacks. So McAdams is like the heart. Wong is respect. Swinton is like, I don't know, selflessness. Mm. And Egypt 4 is bravery. Um, eventually, Strange kind of acquires them all to make him the man he always could be. Yeah. And, and like you say, it seems like these people solely exist to further him. Like they're not, they're just ciphers. Yeah. Every single one of them. They're not even real characters. Yeah. So, yeah. Look, I appreciate having Tilda Swinton in too, despite all the talk beforehand about, yeah, um, about whitewashing. whitewashing. Yeah, yeah. She was really good, and I really liked what she brought to this role. Yeah, I did too, actually. I thought she was a really unique presence. And, you know, Marvel is to be applauded for being able to get yeah. uh, almost exclusively English actors. <laughs> you know, like virtually all of them, except for yeah. McAdams, I think, and yeah. Mads Mikkelsen. Much like Deadpool, for all its wonderful visual trickery, pat philosophy, and off-kilter hero, Doctor Strange is a very traditional superhero origin story. But it could kind of take those elements into a sequel, and it could really use the open-ended storytelling of, say, like, uh, Marvel Universe continuation films. And it could run it in a different direction. You know, like, if it just didn't have to tell that story. Yeah. Like, if it took, you know, it didn't have to be so traditional. It could be interesting. Uh, superhero fans will kind of eat this film up. And as for non-superhero fans, um, Doctor Strange may have enough kind of distractions to entertain or maybe just to distract you from the fact you're watching another cape saviour of the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was reading just today, actually, um, they, they did an interview with a screenwriter of Doctor Strange who said that in, in an earlier version it wasn't an origin story it was just a leap fully into an adventure of Doctor Strange mm. and I kind of I, I almost would love to see that version yeah, yeah. I, I'd written this piece about how this would be this was the film where the shine came off the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm. this was the one that showed the, the weakness of it all but I'm wrong yeah. but because everyone's going to see it and loving it the reviews are great but I still feel this is for me, is where the shine really starts to come off, and, and where you see the weakness in it. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it's at this point in time, um, maybe these origin stories have run out of gas. What did you just do to me? I pushed your astral form out of your physical form. What's in that tea? Psilocybin, LSD. It's just tea with a little honey. And now we're on to the top five. Doctors are often the bearers of bad news. Sometimes they're lifesavers, but often in cinema, good things don't really happen when doctors are around, and that includes Patch Adams. So these are the five strangest doctors that will have you pounding back the apples every day in order to keep them away. Look, since Halloween has been and gone, I'm still in a fright film kind of mood, which is why my picks will all be doctors of the scary kind. Uh, kicking off with the twisted doctor at the heart of Lucio Filke's 1981 splatter flick, The House by the Cemetery. One, Dr. Freudstein. <laughs> Uh, look, The House by the Cemetery is the third and Fulky so-called Gates of Hell trilogy and is in many ways not very good. It makes little sense, even by Fulky standards. Characters who could be good and maybe not, people disappear randomly and no one seems to care. 
The effects vary from rubber flappy bats to a pretty awesome knife in the back of the head that emerges <laughs> through the mouth. And worst of all, we spend almost the entire film in the company of irritating mop-top child Bob, who sounds as if, as if he was dubbed by a sleepy little girl. <laughs> and yet, and this will come as no surprise to anyone, I suspect, I kind of love The House by the Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contains some startling horror moments and was my first introduction to the wild world of Italian splatter. And of course, it introduced me to Dr. Freudstein, a man with a name that stupidly and yet awesomely combines the doctor's Freud with Frankenstein. Mm. Which is almost the only thing I can tell you about the doc, apart from the fact that in a plot development which surely influenced Clive Barker's excellent Hellraiser, he lives in a cellar where he kills people and uses their blood and flesh to rebuild his own decaying body. Two of the overriding memories I had from my first viewing of this film was Freudstein's startling, burnt-looking face, ruined somewhat by DVD covers that insist on showing it, and the scene where Bob's father stabs the doctor only for a river of maggots to flow from the open wound. <laughs> uh, and for those reasons, Dr. Freudstein will always be one of my favourite strange doctors. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, I played it one Halloween. It yeah. was a midnight movie, but you you might have been asleep. <laughs> Maybe so. It gets really slow, like yeah. pacing's really bad. Yeah. And it only really... I mean, that knife at the beginning is great. Yeah. And then it comes alive in the last couple of minutes. <laughs> and the middle is just incoherent <laughs> and slow. With Beverly and Elliot Mantle, you get double the Doctor and double the strangeness. These twin brothers may be experts in the field, but if you're a patient, perhaps don't get into a relationship with one of them, let alone both of them. And certainly don't let them bring their work home. The personally designed surgical tools will make you shudder just by seeing them coldly laid out on a table. The most invasive-looking gynecological equipment that look more like weapons of torture. The Dead Ringers embraces Cronenberg's body horror obsession, this time with a very real-world feel. Uh, This could be the creepiest of the director's films, at the heart of which is a central performance perfectly split in two by Jeremy Irons. The brothers are distinctly separate, yet still in sync as twins. If you have concerns about your health, you may be sitting in the waiting room while these doctors engage in sexual misconduct, drug addiction, and hallucinating about mutant genitalia. It might be best for you to get a second opinion. I am super glad you talked about this because I did think about it because, I mean, it feel it would have felt wrong if it wasn't touched on. Yeah. The only reason I didn't talk about it is I haven't seen it for a long time. Right. And I haven't seen it for a long time because it's really difficult to locate nowadays. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And I've tried, obviously, because it's a film I'd love to have in my library. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the curses, as we've talked about before, of this whole disintegration of video stores and, and normal yeah. services for getting movies is that films like this are lost right. to, to quite a degree. And yet it's wonderful. Irons' performance is, is brilliant. Yeah. There's actually an interesting theory I thought um, uh, I read about that he won the Academy Award for um, for the other film. Yeah and, uh, he, yeah, and they said that it was really because of this film. Well, he thanked Cronenberg in his acceptance speech yeah. for another film, which That's is amazing. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, apparently there was a lot of actors who turned down this role. And uh, William Hurt, apparently, right. and he said that uh, it was difficult enough playing one character he didn't want to yeah. play too but yeah there's a whole bunch of um actors who it went through and he was the first one who actually said yes ah tremendous yeah it's a creepy film i'm sure you've heard of dead ringers if you haven't seen it hunted it out it is yeah it's genuinely creepy i think it's one of his creepiest films actually it's one of my favorite of his films but yeah. like i say difficult to find and those instruments for operating on mutant women yeah uh so terrifying if i could have a movie prop I would like that set. Just <laughs> right. hanging on my wall, maybe. Just, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Oh, that would be that would be genuinely terrifying to come around to someone's house and yeah. find those there. You'd just, run out screaming. Just lay down on the table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, look, no list of strange doctors is complete without the kinky cult classic that is 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fibes. Starring a relatively restrained Vincent Price under layers of pancake makeup, Fibes in its sequel takes its star from the kitschy TV hit The Avengers, uh, a series the film's director Robert Freust cut his teeth on. Uh, Price's Fibes is a vengeful doctor devoting himself to carrying out complicated murders styled on the biblical plagues, all the while stalking around a strange set dominated by a church organ and assisted by a beautiful but mute helpmate. Fibes, too, is of course mute, except when he speaks via a machine he attaches to his throat to mimic his voice. But no matter, because Price, Price plays him with gusto and a surprising amount of pathos, I thought. Uh, in a long career of horror heroes and mostly villains, the abominable Dr. Fibes is perhaps his most iconic celebrated role. Right. I haven't seen this, but I always remember the title. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I think the, I saw the video cover just recently, and it's, uh, it says, and it, it must have come out just after Love Story, you know, which mm-hmm. had the lovers never having to say you're sorry. Yeah. And it's lovers never having to say you're ugly, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is a great tagline. That is great. Look, many of the doctors on this list are strange, odd people working in creepy, nefarious locations. But the next one I've chosen is a regular surgeon going about his rounds in a public hospital. Dr. Lexus is a fine medical man. From his positive greeting... Hey! How's that, ...to his modesty... Don't want to sound like a dick or nothing. ...to his sound diagnosis... It says on your chart that you're fucked up. Uh, you talk like a fag, and your shit's all retarded. He offers specific and precise remedies. What I do is just say... Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and displays a sympathetic connection with his patients. Don't worry, Scrum. Now there are plenty of tards out there living really kick ass lives. And even offers anecdotal evidence of others who have risen above their affliction. My first wife was tarded. She's a pilot now. But even someone of his caliber is confounded by a unique symptom. Where's your tattoo? Tattoo? Why don't you have this? <laughs> Fantastic. That was my uh, idiocracy, which seems very salient yeah, to have yeah. at the moment. Obviously referenced it at the opening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a great... Uh, you know, I kind of feel it's a, fun, it's a funnier film to talk about and reference than it is to actually watch. But it's still pretty funny. Yeah, uh, we've said this before, but that, that is like a two-minute clip of Justin Long. It's still the best thing I've ever seen Justin Long do in my life. <laughs> it totally. <laughs> Other than get killed in Jeepers Creepers. Yes. Yeah. Look, when we first decided on this list, Duncan suggested I'd talk about the reanimator. I think he just assumed I would. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know I wasn't going to, strange enough, but I sure as hell am now. <laughs> and really, why wouldn't I? After all, this is a film with a trio of strange doctors. Bruce Abbott's blandy, good-looking Dr. Kane is the least strange of the threesome. Sure, he reanimates a few dead bodies and gets involved in some pretty unethical secret experiments. But you can put most of that blame on the deliriously nutty Dr. Herbert West, played by Jeffrey Combs in the role of his life. Whip smart and arrogant enough to frequently get into situations totally out of his depth. <laughs> West is also a comic delight, whether it's his fight with a recently reanimated cat, a true classic of the actor wrestling with a monster he has to control with his own with his own hand. Uh, those are the performances that are always one of my favourite bits of actorly business, you know? Yeah. Or his withering put down of recently deceased and more recently reanimated decapitation victim Dr. Carl Hill with words, who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. <laughs> so great. Combs makes West an unforgettable horror man doctor. But it's the talking head I want to give some love to today. The sleazy, wheezing, eyeball-popping talking head 
of the ambitious Dr. Carl Hill, a man of science who just wants to steal West's discovery, make himself famous, and perform an alarming sexual act on the lovely Barbara Crampton. <laughs> David Gale's performance as the true villain of the film often gets overlooked beside Combs' iconic portrayal of Dr. West. But Dr. Hill is a wonderfully camp villainous creation, a seedy monster of a man who gets easily the best and most memorable comic scene of the film, and I think he deserves more respect. <laughs> it's funny you should talk about the um, hand fighting himself. Oh, I, I love those scenes. Because uh, when I was younger, I always kind of put uh, Reanimator and um, Evil Dead who kind of together in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are both so iconic for both of those actors, you know? Yeah. Like, even though they've appeared in other things. Yeah. They're so loved for those, you know. Those roles. Those yeah, roles, yeah. 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 And they're really kind of trend-setting roles, both around that kind of 80s time as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I was, it was, in a good way, get them muddled in my mind. Yeah. Because I just remember seeing them as a kid. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to... Our favourite part of the show, your favourite part of the show, The Tree of Woe. This is where we take a cinematic offender, someone who's really offended us, um, and we put it up on The Tree of Woe to consider their crimes under the hot sun and the uh, vultures. So, Simon, who goes on The Tree of Woe for you this month? Michael Massey passed away this month. That probably doesn't mean much to you. But you'll remember the man. He looked like a gaunt jungle Van Damme with steely eyes that made him a shoo-in for villainous roles, like the first bad guy in the first season of 24. He had small roles in Seven, Lost Highway, and Amazing Spider-Man, and unfortunately, I guess, a larger role in Catwoman. Mm. In 1994, and only a second film, The Crow, he was the man who pulled the trigger on what was supposed to be a prop gun, fatally shooting rising star Brandon Lee. Ooh. The event scarred Massey, causing him to stop acting for a year, despite the fact that it was in no way at all his fault. He did return, though, and acted consistently from then until his passing this October. So not a leading man, and never a big star, but surely deserving of a better obituary than the one in Variety with the headline, Michael Massey, the crow actor who shot Brandon Lee, dies at 64. Oh, gosh. It just seems so cruel that a man whose early career was so brutally affected by a large, by tragedy, you know, completely beyond his control, should have his life eulogized in such a cheap, clickbaity fashion. Variety is one of the leading entertainment publications, and I kind of expect better. Yeah. I understand that this event was huge news at the time, and is one that many readers will probably remember. But surely, surely, at least in death, Massey can get treated with some respect. By all means, mention the Crow incident in the body of the obituary. Uh, I mean, it, it was big news. But please don't make it the subject of the headline. Don't make it the defining moment of a career that lasted for over 20 years. So, you know, up on the tree you go, Variety magazine, to be tortured by a merciless combination of hot sun and ravenous vultures. Years from now, I can only hope that when people ask, what happened to Variety magazine? The only response will, they'll get was, will be, oh, isn't that the magazine that was punished for its cruel obituaries by getting hung up on the tree of woe? <laughs> oh, that's really distasteful. I um, thought so. Yeah, it is. That's shocking. It's shocking that someone... Like you say, yeah, clickbait. That's, that's terrible. Yeah, it is. It's clickbait. That's right. the sole reason for doing that. Absolutely. It's like, oh, yeah, he shot, you know, yeah. and you click on it. And that shouldn't be how a man goes out. No. You know, and particularly, particularly in a case where it was just such a tragic accident. Yeah. And that scarred the man. And yet that he was able to come back and have this career on. Yeah, and that could have been anyone, you know. It could have been, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Wow, that's sad. Worthy of the of of woeness. Worthy of the woe. Yeah. Look, I'm gonna get into literal spoiler alert territory. So forward on for about sixty to ninety seconds if you don't want to know that the girl on the train is a predictable thriller that reeks of being too faithful to its source novel. 
It has a dedicated performance from Emily Blunt and a story that really has a worrying view on gender roles. The women all get their scattered sense of self-worth from one man. It seems reductive and nearly impossible for three women to be infatuated with a single man, let alone if that guy is a beer-swilling, transparent alpha douche whose greatest qualities are a square jaw and a master level of condescension. It's like finding out Kaiser Soze is actually a middle management marketing executive who likes catching up with the guys to watch the Super Bowl and listen to Hooberstank. The crazy thing is that this is basically the plot of The Other Woman. You know that film with Cameron Diaz and Leslie Mann, but played seriously. Um, from alcoholics to baby mamas to damaged nannies, this film is a gin-soaked mess of biological clocks, relationship envy, adultery, and murder. The film itself isn't going up on the tree. It actually has a couple of redeemable qualities for that. But one irredeemable quality that is going up is that the catalyst for all the events is that these three adult characters, of whom we are supposed to empathize with, are unhappily defined by someone else. And I just found that, like, mind-bending that we're in 2016 and this is, you know, these are your protagonists. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. What was that? A gin-soaked... That's got to be the tagline. Uh, a gin-soaked no, mess of biological clocks, relationship, envy, adultery, and murder. That should absolutely be up on the movie poster. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Spoiler alert. And that's spoiler alert for this month. Yeah. So, Simon, what was your favourite film of the month? Ah, oh, Evolution. So great, I want to watch it as soon as I can. Again, you know, it's purposely constructed, eerie, fascinatingly weird. So great to look at. As I said earlier, the last two or so years have been great for art house horror uh, with It Follows, The Babadook, The Witch, and films like Spring, Under the Shadow, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and Evolution. Just, you know, Trump presidency aside, this is a great time to be alive, folks. <laughs> and uh, what about you? Oh, it's a, it's a difficult one. Um, I really enjoy Ghostbusters. And I would say that someone who's maybe been holding back from watching it because of all of the kind of... Yeah, what they've heard, maybe. The, the, the political yeah. kind of social thing. Definitely check it out. I think if you just go in and watch it, it's pretty well-handled film. And I, I, I really genuinely hope they make a sequel for it. Um, but can I also say, check out um, Stage Fright, the Hitchcock film. Right, cool. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, and we were talking about Hitchcock last month, yep. I think it's worth checking out. Marlene Dietrich's fantastic in it. It's got some really cool things... Um, that I'd love to talk about further, but it would be a bit spoilery. Um, but there's some nice stuff that, you know, mm. is foreshadowing, precursoring a yep. lot of things he did later on in his career. So, uh, yeah, check out Stage Fright if you get a chance. Brilliant. Good recommendation. Cool. Um, also, I'd love to give a shout-out for um, the Radio New Zealand, who did a little item on... Oh, uh, yeah, on podcasts. On podcasts. On that we New Zealand my name. podcast. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That's fantastic. And it was also really cool to hear other podcasts to listen to, yeah. you know. There were some great um, concepts for podcasts, film-themed yeah. podcasts. Yeah. So uh, it might still be on the RNZ site. I'm not sure, but that was uh, that was really cool. It was on the Jesse Mulligan show, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, yeah. so really good. And look, the music we're going out to, I spoke about it before. <laughs> the music we're going out to is The Sheriff and the Satellite Kid. Oh. <laughs> and it's a song called I'm the Sheriff. Yeah. Uh, by Oliver Onions. Oliver Onions? Like, yeah, who are like a two-piece or something. But they did a whole bunch of Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill films. They did a lot of the soundtracks for them. And this film is like a loop in hell in my head. It was just for a week I was just humming this, and uh, I don't think I'll ever forget it. So You're going to uh, share the pain. I'm going to share the pain. And I, you, you'll listen to it and go, oh, yeah, that's kind of goofy. But you imagine this reprised yeah. for literally half a film yeah. of screen time. Uh, yeah. 
All right, bring it on. <laughs> Let's go. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Cheers. Rondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes.